Turn in your Bibles to Isaiah chapter 9. Uh, we kick off Advent this morning, and Jason talked about the different meanings to the candles. Well, there's one other interpretation that also has been handed down uh, throughout the years in the tradition of the church, and that is that the first candle, the first Sunday of Advent, is known as the Hope Candle. And we focus uh, on the first Sunday on Jesus as the hope of the world. Now, as uh, the song was sung just now for us, and that plea, light of the world come down, there's a couple possible interpretations or experiences that you may have had as that song was sung. The first would be to put yourself, hopefully, in the Christmas spirit. You're thinking of that first Christmas, and you're thinking about the first century Jews saying, light of the world, come down, and you're longing for that kind of experience in your life today, and, and that would be fine. But you really want to make Advent come alive this year? Then Add into your Advent season what historically has been a critical element of celebrating Christmas. We've talked about it already, and that is get really serious about reflecting upon the return of Christ, the second coming. You see, at the first coming, Israel was desperate they had been in exile for several hundred years before the time of Christ. The Roman Empire had arisen and was oppressing them almost as badly as Egypt 2,000 years earlier. And when they sang something like, light of the world come down, they were desperate. They were at the end of their ropes. They felt like they had hardly any hope at all. And all of the promises of Messiah seemed almost empty. And it's interesting that in the New Testament, we're told that the time will come when people will say, where's the time of His coming? As long as we can remember, it's always been the same. And people will lose faith. And you look at the current events, and you hear the news, and you listen to people talk about how bad things are, and how awful things are, and we're concerned about how things are going to be for our children and our children's children. And God says, use that. Use that desperation, and go vertical. And enter into the chorus, oh, light of the world, come down. We are desperate. And too often we're, we're trying to get in the Christmas spirit. I'm not, I'm not trying to be in a Scrooge. I really am not. I'm into Christmas as much as anybody. But you really want Christmas to take off? Start reflecting more and more on the second coming. Because that's when we enter into the desperation of the first century Jews that for, were longing for the light of the world to come down.
The whole context of Isaiah chapter 9 creates a context of longing where we want the light of the world to come down. Let me set the context for you. It's about 740 years before the time of Christ. The kingdom has been divided. The prosperity of the Davidic and Solomon rule is gone because of Rehoboam, Solomon's son's disobedience. There's ten tribes of Israel to the north. They're called Israel, and their capital is Samaria. And there's two tribes to the south. That's called the kingdom of Judah, and the capital is Jerusalem. Around 740 B.C., there's a new bully on the block. Its name is Assyria. Assyria made up what is now Iran and Iraq. And the Assyrian Empire was moving west toward the Mediterranean, toward Israel, toward Judah, toward Syria, toward Turkey. And the kings of Israel and Syria decided that they needed to make an alliance to fight against the bully on the block, Assyria. And so Israel and Syria began to threaten Judah. That if Judah wouldn't join them in their pact and fight against Assyria, then Israel and Syria would go ahead and just take Judah out anyway. Now, God, through the prophet Isaiah, appeared to the king of Judah, Ahaz, and said, Don't you dare fear what they fear. Trust me. I'll be your God. I'll be your warrior. Ahaz refused to trust God's promises and went around the backs of Israel and Syria and actually formed an alliance with the bully. Judah formed an alliance with Assyria to protect itself against Israel and Syria. So God sent Isaiah again and said, bad move, Ahaz. Because of your unbelief and your lack of trust, not only is Assyria going to come west and take out Israel and Syria that you were afraid of, but Assyria is also going to turn on you. And they're going to take you out as well. Not only that, because of your disobedience and unbelief, you're eventually going to be carried off into exile. And you will be in a distant land, far away from Jerusalem, and no longer near my presence in the temple. Into that context, God sends Isaiah again. And says, in spite of your sin, in spite of your failure, in spite of your unbelief, I am still going to show you my grace. And I am going to bring an ultimate deliverer to show you 
that you need never make alliances with the world. You need never engage in self-protection through your idolatry. But you can always put your hope and trust in me. That is the context where we hear about the wonderful counselor, the mighty God, the everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. Let's all stand in our reverence for God's Word. And some of this text might actually make better sense uh, to you now, now that you've heard all of that background. Isaiah 9, verses 1 through 7, this is God's Word. But there will be no gloom for her who is in anguish. You get that now. Okay, Judah's in gloom. Judah's in anguish. Why? Because they didn't trust God. And God allowed Assyria to take them down and take them out. And then later on, Babylon, carrying them off into exile. In the former time, he, God, brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. Again, because of her unbelief, because of her unwillingness to trust God. But in the latter time, he's talking now about the coming of Messiah, he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations, Jesus. The people who walked in darkness because of their sin and failure have seen a great light, light of the world come down. Israel had to read this passage for hundreds of years with seemingly no fulfillment. Can you start to feel the desperation? It ought to be some of the desperation we feel today, in our day. You have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. For the yoke of his burden, the staff for his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. Can you imagine reading this with your family, living under oppression and brokenness? And just longing for it to be true, if not for you, for your children and your children's children. For every boot of the tramping warrior in battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. No more war. No more violence. No more oppression. For to us... A child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. O light of the world, come down now. This is God's inspired, infallible, inerrant, and authoritative word. He gave it to us because he loves us and he longs for us to live in hope of salvation 
redemption, deliverance, and restoration. Let's pray. And so God, maybe, by your grace and spirit, maybe we came in here satisfied, and now we're desperate. Now we're longing. Now we're aware of what has been promised and what we do not yet experience. And so now, God, here we are. Teach us your hope. In Jesus' name, amen. Go and have a seat. So we're going to go through each of the titles of Messiah. And this week, of course, is Wonderful Counselor. First of all, we find hope in the child's power. That first title, Wonderful, is only ever used of God, and it refers to God's saving, redemptive, restorative acts of deliverance on behalf of his people. It refers to the amazing, astonishing, marvelous power of God himself. It refers to a deliverance so miraculous that only God could accomplish Assyria couldn't accomplish it. No nation that Israel puts their hope in could accomplish it. Only God himself could accomplish it. And throughout the Old Testament, the wonders of God's deliverance, the wonders of God's divine supernatural salvation are recounted. One of the places we see it is Psalm 78, verses 12 through 16, and it talks about the wonders of God by putting out the plagues upon Egypt, by delivering Israel through the Red Sea, by providing the pillar of cloud during the day to protect Israel from the heat, and also the pillar of fire at night to protect Israel from the cold and to guide her on her way and to place a division between her and anybody who would try to attack her from the rear. In 1 Corinthians 10, Paul recounts the same wondrous acts of God. And he adds to what Psalm 78 says, and Psalm 78, 78 actually mentions this as well, that drinking the water from the rock, and what does it say in 1 Corinthians 10? The rock was Christ. The rock was Messiah. So even before Isaiah promises Messiah. Messiah has already been present with Israel. And Paul, like Isaiah, reveals that we are to put our hope in the divine power of Christ to rescue us. See, so often we put our hope in our own resources or the resources of this broken world. Folks, As long as you put your hope and trust in anything other than Jesus, you will lose hope. You will be disappointed. But when you put your hope in the wondrous, delivering power of God, you'll never be disappointed. And in this text, Isaiah reveals the power of of the wondrous Messiah. Look at verse 4. The yoke of his burden he has broken or he's freed them from. It's talking about the Old Testament church's 
uh, being oppressed by Egypt and all kinds of other enemies throughout history. And the power of God is able to break that yoke off of our necks. And of course, when it comes to Israel's true problem and the real enemy power, it was never Assyria. It was never Egypt. It was never Babylon. And your problem today is not the problem that you're thinking about right now. What's keeping you up at night? What's causing you to lose sleep? What's making you anxious when you wake up in the morning? That's not your biggest problem. Your biggest problem is internal. Sin is the great oppressor. Sin is the great enslaver. And as long as we think our real problems are external to our lives, we will look for lesser wonders to deliver us. But if we're constantly reminded that our greatest problem is spiritual oppression and the yoke of sin, then we will always turn to Christ to be relieved of the yoke. It talks about Midian. What what does that have to do with anything related to Christmas or the second coming. Well, if you know anything about the battle of Midian, it occurs in Judges chapter 7. In Judges 7, one of the judges, his name is Gideon. Now, Gideon, you probably know because in his unbelief, he's the one who laid out the fleece. You know, we talk about discerning God's will and and we joke about fleecing it, you know. And he said, well, okay, if this is really you and this want me to do what you want me to do, uh, I'm going to play a, put a fleece out. And if this is really your will, there'll be dew all around the ground, but no dew on the fleece. And so God did it. And then Gideon still wasn't done. And his unbelief, he said, okay, this time make, make the fleece wet and all the ground dry. And God did it again. Well, God decided to use that, that, that stumbling, bumbling Gideon to deliver his people from the Midianites. There was this huge battle at the Battle of Midian. There were 132,000 Midianites. There were 32,000 Israelites. That's four to one. Those are pretty bad odds for Israel. But God said, our unbelief and brokenness is so great that even at four to one, you'll try to do it on your own. And so God reduced Israel's troops to 300. And he said, okay, now you'll be desperate. Now you'll cry out, light of the world, come down. What's going on in your life where God is changing the odds? Where a problem started off and, okay, you thought I can deal with that. But then God changed the odds and it became more unlikely that you were going to be able to handle it. And you still thought, well, with God's help, I'll do it. And you were still focused on your power. And so then God changes the odds again. And now you know there's absolutely no way you can do this. And God says, okay. Now you'll see my wonder. Now you'll see my 
miraculous deliverance. And the things that God has allowed into our lives that we think are the real issues are partly there just to show us how helpless we are against our internal battle with sin and unbelief. And so God did whittle down Israel's troops to 300. And guess what? He's whittled down our troops to one. Jesus. Messiah. He is our only hope. And when we begin to grasp that and the power with which he rules the world, we will begin to enjoy Christmas again and with longing cry out, light of the world, come down. We find our hope in the child's power. Secondly, we find our hope in the child's wisdom. The second part of the title, wonderful counselor. Now, you know that the word counselor has to do with advisors, administrators, that kings in the Old Testament Middle East utilized in order to run their kingdom. They wanted their kingdom to be effective. They wanted their kingdom to bring good and prosperity to the subjects of the kingdom. And so every king, even the kings you see in Scripture, they all had counselors. They all had advisors. And it was their role to provide the king with the wisdom he needed to run the kingdom effectively. And if the advisors or the counselors were good and wise, then the kingdom prospered and the people prospered. But if the counselors were bad, wicked, evil, and foolish, the kingdom suffered and the people suffered. David surrounded himself with amazing counselors. One of his counselors was named Ahithophel. And we learn in 1 Corinthians 27.33 that Ahithophel, his counsel in David's ear was just as the very word of God. Now, I talked earlier about the divided kingdom and Rehoboam, Solomon's son. He had access to Solomon's counselors that were good and wise. But he chose not to listen to them and to listen to the foolish counselors that were his own age, people that he'd grown up with, and they gave him poor counsel. And as a result of the poor counsel of the advisors, the kingdom split, and it was never the same. Now, when it comes to the Messiah promised, he himself is the counselor. He is the king of kings who needs no advice. We find out in Isaiah 11, verse 2, upon him the spirit of wisdom rests. In Isaiah 40, verse 14, whom did he consult and who made him understand? In the New Testament, we learn that in Christ are hidden all of the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. So Jesus is the king of kings, the divine man king who needs no advisors, who needs no counselors, who rules his kingdom for the prosperity 
and good of the subjects. And you're listening and you're saying, I don't know what kingdom you're talking about, Bob. But the story that I'm experiencing right now doesn't seem like a very good story. I don't see how wise counsel is prevailing in the chapter I'm in. And neither did Israel in Isaiah's day. And God proclaimed to Israel that because of the wonderful counselor whose plans are never thwarted by evil and whose every precept he lays down for our stories is good, we need to continue to trust that yes, though life may be hard, our hope is that what we're facing right now is a word and a clause in a sentence, in a paragraph, in a chapter, in a section of the book that is our story. We are to continue to hope in the wonderful counsel of our wise Messiah. Even in this life, however, And this needs to be said so often to our age and the church in our age. Even if it never gets better in this life, what are 80 years of pain and suffering compared to to an eternity where the story is there will never be one more tear. There will never be any more sorrow or death or pain. Now please hear me. I would never ever want to minimize the pain and suffering that some of us are undergoing. And in Messiah's wise counsel, he very likely has planned for you at some point change, restoration, perhaps even relief. But like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego said when they were faced with the prospect of the fiery furnace, our God is able to deliver us, O King. But even if he does not, be it known, we will not bow down to the idol that you have set up. Is there brokenness in your marriage, in your family? Are your children out of control or not speaking to you? Are you at the very brink of financial collapse? 
Are you sick and tired of the brokenness of this world? Will you trust that Jesus is on his throne? He knows what he's doing. He doesn't need your counsel to set him straight. And he is ruling heaven and earth for his glory and your good. Find hope in the child's power. Find hope in the child's wisdom. And then lastly, and in some ways most hopeful of all, find hope in the child's compassion. It's interesting, wonderful counselor focuses on the one hand on the divinity of Christ, wonderful, miraculous, amazing, astonishing power of God, and on the humanity of Christ, counselor. The king's counselors all throughout history were humans who gave advice and counsel to the king. And Christ's humanity, as we approach Christmas, ought to be just as hope-giving as his divinity. You say, well, how can that be true? Well, it does say in verse 6, for to us a child is born, to us a son is given. The son is the eternal second person of the Trinity who was given, but the child was born of a woman, the child was fully human as well as fully God. And because Christ was fully human, he's able to sympathize with us in our weakness. Hebrews 4 verse 15, Jesus is a sympathetic high priest who is tempted in every way as we are, yet he never sinned. Jesus was exposed to the temptations of the flesh. Jesus was exposed to the weaknesses of humanity. Sometimes I think we give Jesus a free pass. Like, because he was God, life was just a piece of cake for him. Look, Jesus was God, but Christ's divine nature didn't always inform his human nature. In Luke 2.52, we learn that Jesus had to grow in wisdom. Just like he had to grow from a baby into an adult, just like he had to grow from seven pounds to, who knows, 170 pounds, he also had to grow in wisdom. He had to face a world where he had to develop. He never ceased being God. But his human nature had to grow. He knows what it's like to be around foolishness. He knows what it's like to have to discern between truth and error. And he knows how hard that can be. He knows how hard it is to deal with the brokenness and the grief and the loss of this life. The New Testament is filled with Jesus having compassion toward human beings. Because he experienced life as a human being. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, all four Gospels. Matthew 9, 36, Jesus was filled with compassion. Why? Because he looked at the people and he saw them as harassed and helpless. He saw them like sheep without a shepherd. And in his human nature, he felt sympathy. 
and compassion. Just like you feel compassion, some of us maybe, for dogs that are running stray along a road and they're about to get hit perhaps. What happens in your soul? That happened to Jesus as he saw people. Matthew, Mark, the gospel of Mark, chapter 1. There was a blind, there was a leper. Do you know what it was like to be a leper in the first century? You know what it was like to be a leper in Israel? Because being around a leper could exclude you from the presence of God and the worship of God in the temple and the synagogue. The leper had to stay away from everybody. You think COVID's been bad? You ought, to, you ought to think about leprosy. And if someone got near them, they had to shout, unclean, unclean, stay away. You can't get near me. No touch, no hugs, no affection. Miserable isolation. And the leper ran up toward Jesus and said, if you're willing, you can make me clean. And the text tells us that Jesus filled with compassion. As he thought about broken humanity's isolation and the suffering this man must have experienced, filled with compassion, he said, I'm willing, be cleansed. Matthew, Mark, Luke. Jesus visits a town called Nain. And there's a widow there. You, you know what a widow is? Someone who's lost their husband. You know what a woman was in the first century without a husband? Nothing. No legal protection. No legal identity completely unable to provide for herself, she's a widow. Thankfully, she has a son, the salvation of women in the first century. She has a son. He's grown. He protects her. He provides for her. And her only son, the text says, dies. She's done. Hopeless. Jesus is even asked. He sees the grief. And he goes to the woman and he says, do not cry. And then the text says he raised her son and then such incredible words to reflect on. He brought the son to her and gave him to her. I can just picture Jesus taking the, the dead man's hand that is now warm and alive again. And taking the grieving mom's hand with tears streaked all over it. And joining them together. Jesus is a compassionate Messiah. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. John 11. Three of Jesus' best friends. The sisters Mary and Martha and their brother Lazarus. 
Lazarus was probably Jesus' best friend who wasn't one of the 12. And Lazarus dies. And Jesus goes and sees Mary and Martha weeping and all the people grieving loss and death. Jesus, if, if he wasn't compassionate, would have said, listen, we all stop already? I'm going to do a sign and wonder here. I'm going to be the wonderful counselor. I, I, I am going to raise up Lazarus. Stop your crying. What did Jesus do? John 11.35 says he wept. He wept. He knew what he was going to do, and he still wept. That's compassion. He entered into the pain of the people. What's your pain this morning? All four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, all filled with the compassion of a counselor. I mean, let's face it. Aren't some of the most compassionate people you know counselors? If they're not, they're not going to be in business very long. We go to a counselor in our brokenness. We go to a counselor in our pain. We go to a counselor when we feel like we're stuck, when we feel like we can't move, when we feel like we're in bondage, when we feel like we're addicted to sin we can't get rid of. We go to a counselor. And a good one meets us in compassion. Jesus is the most wonderful counselor you could ever visit. And his arms are constantly open to you. Will you go? Jesus wept over Jerusalem. And he said, oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, how I have longed to gather you as a hen gathers her chicks. But you were not willing. Ahaz wasn't willing to trust God's promises. 1 Corinthians 10, Paul says that the generation that died in the wilderness wasn't willing to trust God's promises. And so today, in the midst of the brokenness and chaos and darkness of this world, are we willing to run to Jesus, to experience the wonder of his power, the wisdom and goodness of his, of his counsel, and the compassion of his heart. Let's pray. Father, I know what people in this room are experiencing. Some of them I know their stories. Others, I just know they're like me. They're broken. They're sinful. They wrestle with unbelief. They're scared. They have fears, anxieties. And then, Lord, we find ourselves in this crazy, mixed-up world. We're concerned for our children or our children's children. And, God, if we think like that, we are headed for the same mistakes that Ahaz made. So God, instead, turn us vertically and enable us to sing this Advent, Light of the World, Come Down. 
into our misery and brokenness. God, open our eyes this Christmas that we would see we are as miserable as the first century Jews. And most of the time, our lives are so filled with trinkets of this world and experiences that this life offers that we don't even recognize how desperate we are. Lord, for those who don't feel lost today, open their eyes, especially for those who are truly lost, who've not put their hope and trust in Christ. God, may today be the day of their salvation. May they transfer their trust from their own efforts at being good. And may they rest in Messiah, wonderful counselor. We love you, Jesus. Thank you for loving us. We pray this in your name. Amen. Let's all stand and hear the benediction, the promise of God's mercy, love, and grace upon our lives through wonderful counselor. And now may the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God our Abba Father and the fellowship and transforming power of the Holy Spirit be with you now and